I'm reading from Exodus chapter 32, verses 1 to 14. And my heading is the golden calf. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow, as for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterwards they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favour of the Lord, his God. O Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out, to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them out of the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger. Relent and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and I will give your descendants all the land I promised them and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading from his word. Um, so this morning Owen's going to be preaching to us. So Owen, if you'd like to come up. I said I wouldn't interview you, so it'll be very, very brief. Um, Owen, quickly, what's your name and where are you from? Owen Oates, and we're currently living in the Ganella Bar, attending the Ballina Church, Ballina Presley Church. Excellent. And this is Owen's second time that he's come down here to preach, is that right? Yes. And he'll be here <laughs> next week as well, so long as we're nice to him afterwards and give him a cup of tea. Is that all right? Yeah, that sounds good Okay, to over to Owen. Thank you. Last time I was here, uh, last year, I don't know if you remember, uh, but I uh, spoke about God's attributes or his characteristics, and the first one we looked at last time was God's love. And so this morning I want to look at a second characteristic of God and it's God's wrath or God's anger. So let's pray together before we begin. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word this morning, we pray for your guidance and help 
But also, Lord, we pray that you help us to see what this passage has to teach us in 2010. Help us to learn, Lord, and apply it to our own personal lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Quite a while back now, I was watching a show on TV, and it was a show that featured the the terrorist attacks uh, in Mumbai, in, in India. And that day, some 170-odd people were killed in the name of Allah. And I couldn't help thinking as I watched that show that man's sin was seen so clearly right on the screen in front of me. And, of course, when we're talking about sin, we're talking about the basic sin is man's rebellion against God. The thefts that we see around as the violence and murder are all symptoms of the disease, but the basic disease is man's rebellion or his rejection of God. You know, sin is a part of all our lives. You know, and I guess there, in some respects, I'm no better than the people I was looking at on TV. And I think it's true for me, and I guess it's true for many of us, that the main person we have trouble with is ourselves. The Apostle Paul said, I do the things I don't want to do, and I don't do the things that I want to do. And so this passage that we're looking at today involves sin. It involves the sin of Israel. And you'll find the outline on the back of your order of service. We know when we look at verses 1 to 6, God has miraculously brought the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. And he's called Moses up on the mountain to give him some instructions. Moses has given those two stone tablets with the Ten Commandments on them. But you see, while he's away, there's something going on down below. But before I go on, I want to ask two questions. What is wrath and why does God have it? What have Israel done to incur God's wrath? Now, at home I have two dictionaries. One is a 1925 Webster's, and I don't know if any of you have seen one of those, but it's about this thick. It's a real knee-breaker. My dad was a writer and he used that dictionary and it has literally millions of words from the English language in it. Uh, The other, I only get that one out when I'm stuck. (laughs) The other one that I use is a little Collins pocket dictionary. Now my my Collins pocket dictionary describes describes the word wrath as intense anger. My 1925 Webster says that it is violent anger, deep and determined indignation, vehement exasperation, Rage, fury, ire. And so wrath then is not a matter of kind of just being a bit upset. It's not just angry. It involves, as Webster said, extreme passion. To be wrathful is to be so angry that we might even be out of control. And what is it that's caused God to be so angry with Israel? We'll take a look at verses 1 to 6 of the passage we're looking at, and in particular verse 4. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off your gold earrings that your wives, your sons and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. 
You see, it's Israel's sin that's God made angry. And what a sin it is. You see, I think these first six verses in, in this chapter are a terrible indictment of the nation of Israel. Take a look at verse 1. The people are impatient. They gather around Aaron like a bunch of vultures, don't they? Moses has been gone up on the mountain for 39 days. And look how they refer to him. This fellow Moses, they say. And so they're already treating him with contempt. And in verse 1 they say they don't know what's happened to him. But that's not exactly true, is it? They saw him go up into the cloud to meet with God. They knew he was meeting with God and he's still there. They knew God was talking to Moses, but for them it was just taking far too long. And so after all the displays of God's power to them, they want to make their own idol, their own statue, and worship that instead. You know, when we look at this, we think, what a rotten, miserable, unfaithful, pathetic bunch they were. They want to head off to the promised land and they aren't worried if they leave their God behind and they leave their religion behind. And if they thought something had happened to Moses, were they worried? Were they going to miss him? Were they going to mourn his passing? (laughs) Not for a second. Let's make a God, they say, and we'll have a party as well. And so after all that Moses has done for them, they don't care two hoots about him. And you know, they didn't care two hoots about their God either. They can't even be bothered waiting for God's leading. And so they go right ahead and set up their own religious worship. And this is despite the fact that God was still there with them. He still provided food for them daily. You see, it's not as though God had deserted them. His presence amongst them was still obvious. You know, such is the depravity of the human heart. And does Aaron protest? Does Moses' right-hand man oppose all this? No, he doesn't, does he? Not only does he not protest, but he actually makes the idol for them. And notice what he says about that when he's questioned in verse 24. Have a look at verse 24. So I told them, whoever has any jewellery, take it off. Then they gave me the gold, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. I don't know if you believe in fairy stories, but that certainly was one. He threw the the gold into the fire and out came this calf. You see, the trouble with sin is that so often it leads to further sin. Aaron is trying to cover up his part in this by further sin. Now, it has been suggested that he might have gone along with them as a joke in the hope that they would see their stupidity. It's also been suggested that he asked for their gold earrings instead of gold from their wallets, believing that they wouldn't part with their earrings. If that's the case, then he made a grave error in judgment. And why did Aaron build an altar to the Lord, for a festival to the Lord? Well, maybe it was because he realised his grave error. Maybe they were getting out of control, so he tried to right the sinking ship. But that's all speculation. We don't know that. It's only speculation. But you see, the trouble is they were going to worship God through this idol. You know, idolatry is idolatry, no matter who you worship through it. Well, what a terrible bunch they were. How quickly they turned their back on God. How quickly they forgot about Moses. 
And now I think the swiftness of the onset of their unfaithfulness astounds us. We look at this passage and we tend to say, how low can you go? Just like us, aren't they? Remember what Jesus said to the mob who wanted to stone the woman who was caught in adultery? They tried to trap him. They said, they knew the law said that she was she should be stoned to death, but they knew that Jesus was advocating forgiveness and love. And so they thought, no matter what he answers, we've got him trapped. We've got him no matter which way it goes. Remember what he said to them? He offered them the stones and said, let you who is without sin throw the first stone. And one by one they all disappeared. You see, we're so good at condemning other people, aren't we? It's so easy for us, me included, I'm not speaking to you and not including myself, it's so easy for us to see the faults in other people and yet not notice our own. Does anyone here want the first stone? Does anyone here have a right to have the first stone? I don't think so. So as Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 to 18, where he quotes from the Psalms in Isaiah, Paul said this, There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away, they have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Does that sound familiar? Doesn't that paint a very accurate picture of our world today? And it should sound, sound familiar to us too because, you know, Paul is talking about every one of us until we receive God's forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Well, what idols do we have? Statues of Buddha are very common these days. You'll see them everywhere. Mary can be an idol in the Catholic Church. So are statues of Jesus. There was a a minister in one of the Presbyterian churches we were involved in at one stage was actually chastised by a lady for daring to put something on the communion table. You see, for her that table had become an idol. A Muslim will never place his copy of the Quran on the floor below him He will never mark it with a highlighter the way we do. You see, they revere the book itself. For them, the book is an idol. But what man-made things do we consider sacred? Well, so often these days we we idolise sportsmen and sportswomen, don't they? People who do do well in the Olympic Games and that kind of thing. Maybe we idolise money or work. Maybe we idolise charity work, material possessions. A gifted minister in the church can be idolised. See, idolatry can take so many different forms, but no matter what form it takes, it's always wrong, even if we worship the true God through it. Idolatry is always wrong, and it's always against God because it's stealing from God what rightfully belongs to him. When Sally and I were at Bible College at SMBC, um, we were down in a, in a shopping centre one day and it, was, it had a covered car park and we were in underneath in the car park. 
And this older fellow drove into the car park, evidently against the arrows pointing the direction he was supposed to go, and he didn't know which way to go, and he drove in the wrong way. And there was this other man in there who went absolutely crazy. And he got out of his car and he was swearing and carrying on, and he, he started to actually rip the plastic wheel trims off these guy's wheels and throw them around the car park. Such was his, his anger. And the old fellow kind of just sat there stunned in the car. He didn't, he didn't know what was going on. And I picked up a couple of his wheel trims and poked them back through his driver's side window and told him to move the car away from this crazy person. The man then came to me. He had a European accident. And he came up to me and he asked me if I was a, a Bolshevik. And he was obviously insane and I ignored him. And then the security cards came and they arrived and, and dealt with the situation. I don't know what happened after that. You see, his anger was unwarranted. It was absolutely crazy. And we can see that on our TVs every night on the news, can't we? The bashings, the senseless bashings in places like Sydney happen all too often. And God is angry too in our passage. But it's not the insane anger of a crazy person. And it's not unwarranted anger. And that's because God's anger uh, is justifiable. God is justifiably angry with mankind. You know, God is angry, and when we look at this passage and think about it, it's fair enough, isn't it? You know, if we were in God's place, we'd be angry too. But you see, God's anger is not like my anger. It's not like our anger. Our anger stems from hurt feelings when someone upsets us or, or our pride is dented where our reputation is tarnished. We're angry maybe when we don't get our own way or when something goes wrong. We might be angry when others don't see eye to eye with us on things that we think are obvious. Our anger is always a result of our human frailties. But you see, God doesn't suffer from human frailties. God's anger is in response to sin which he hates. And of course, sin is just our rebellion against God. God's hatred of sin is constant and it's unchanging. And it has nothing to do with hurt feelings or any of the things that cause our anger. God is a holy God who loves justice and good and right. And therefore, I think it's no surprise that he hates that which is against his character. He hates sin in all its forms. And so his wrath or his anger is not based on hurt feelings, but it's based on his opposition to that which is against his holy name. Have a look at verse 8 of our reading. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made, them, made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed, 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 I'll get it right. they have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said... These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. See, the people are so quick to turn away from the God who rescued them from the Egyptians. They're so quick to reject the living God in favour of a worthless idol that they made with their own hands. They're so quick, as the Bible says, to prostitute themselves before this false God and be unfaithful. And it's no wonder that God is so angry with them that he wants to do away with a whole lot of them. God says that he'll get rid of them and then he'll build Moses into a great nation. 
But I think here we see something of Moses' character too because he's concerned for the people rather than promoting himself and his family line. And it tells us how unselfish Moses was. And notice in verse 7 too that God refers to them not as his people that he brought up out of Egypt, but as Moses' people who he, Moses, brought out of Egypt. So God is distancing himself from the people in their sin. We know, I think God's wrath is a good thing. It may sound a little strange at first because we normally think of anger as a negative thing, don't we? But it shows us that he cares about sin. Imagine if God wasn't concerned about sin. Imagine if he didn't care and just let the world go its own way. Or if he actually promoted sin. Imagine if there was no hope of a better life after this one is finished. If that was the kind of God we had, then he wouldn't be worthy of our worship. Is God pleased with us? Or is God angry with us? Would he say to us, each one of us, well done, good and faithful servant? See, God has every right to be angry with every one of us. We're all, every one of us, rotten sinners through and through. We're the only of condemnation. But it's only through Jesus that God's anger is turned away. And that is done so effectively and so completely that God sees Christians as perfect. If you have you committed your life to Christ, that God now sees you as perfect, even though we know how imperfect we really are. I thought, what a wonderful blessing, a wonderful comfort that is for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, they say it's a woman's prerogative to change her mind. I wonder if that means that men don't do that. I wonder if the person who said that had been shopping uh, to the shopping centre with his wife. Now, I don't like shopping centres. I hate the places. And the ones in the city in particular can be a bit of a nightmare, can't they? They're often noisy and they're crowded. And have you noticed that 99% of the shops seem to cater for women? Have you noticed that? I'm getting quite a few nods. In. There's, so often there's nothing really to take a bloke's interest in a shopping centre. And so a visit to the shopping centre can be a, a dreary procession past a myriad of boring shops. And women like to browse, don't they? Have you noticed that, guys? Women like to browse more than we do? See, they're, they're different from us men, aren't they? In more ways than one. Us men prefer to get in and we get what we need and then get out as soon as possible. We usually know what we want and we go straight to where we can get it and get out. But women seem to be often so indecisive, especially when it comes to clothing. Sally can be looking at something that I think is quite nice and then before you know it, it's back on the rack and she's looking at something else. She seems to change her mind so much. Sometimes I'm thinking, yes, that's good, and it's gone again and she's looking elsewhere. And a a search for some clothing can end up being quite a major undertaking. It is a woman's prerogative to change her mind. You know, it seems too when we look at our passage that there's a change of mind in our passage now. But is that what's really happened? Has God changed his mind? And if so, what brought about this change of mind? And I want to begin this last point by asking the question, how is our prayer life? Well, God was going to do away with the Israelites. He was going to get rid of them. But what changed? What happened 
to avert God's anger. Did God make a mistake and then then realise after his mistake? Did he change his mind? You know, when Moses appealed to God, he did it on the basis of three points. A bit like a three-point sermon like this one, except that he was speaking directly to God. So his was a three-point prayer. And notice Moses says, your people who you brought out of Egypt. See, Moses was saying, these aren't my people, Lord, they're, they're yours. And take, take a look at verse 11 of our passage today. But Moses sought the favour of the Lord his God. O Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people? whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand. So the first point of Moses' appeal is on the basis of God's covenant relationship seen through the Exodus and their escape from slavery in Egypt. God made a covenant or a deal with the Israelites. He said to them, I'll be your God and you'll be my people. You remain true to me and I'll look after you. And Moses said, look what you've done for them already, Lord. You brought them out of Egypt. Don't turn your back on them now. Now take a look at verse 12. Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. The second point of Moses' appeal is the need to keep God's name holy. See, Moses says that God's name will be profaned among the Egyptians. In other words, God will be spoken badly about in the other countries. They'll say, what sort of God is this? He can't keep his own mob in line and he had to get rid of a lot of them. And so Moses' concern is for the people, but it's also for God's name to be honoured. The third point of Moses' appeal is God's promises to the patriarchs. Moses says, remember the promises you made to build a great nation from Abraham Isaac and Israel, which is Jacob. Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. You can't go back on that now, Lord. You can't go back on your promise. And Moses' prayer is effective and God turns aside from his wrath. Does God change his mind? Well, I believe that God doesn't change his mind. I believe he acts in according to a given situation. He rejects sin in any form. And you know, God knows everything before it happens. He knew that the people were going to turn away from him. Nothing takes him by surprise. And in the situation we're looking at today, God acts to bring judgment upon Israel. There was nothing good in all of this, so God was going to do away with the whole lot of them. And that was the right response to their sin. But then something happened to change the situation. What was it that changed this all bad situation into something that God could work with? What was the ray of sunshine sunshine in this whole gloomy affair? Someone prayed for mercy. That's what changed this whole sordid affair. Someone prayed for mercy. And then God had to respond in line with his character of love and mercy and faithfulness. The disaster was averted thanks to one man's prayer. And it wasn't his prayer as such as if it was some magic formula in the words that he spoke. There was nothing in his words that made God relent. It was the fact that he was praying. What changed the situation was the fact that Moses was praying for them. So how's our own personal prayer life? 
How much of a priority is it for each one of us? How often do we forget to pray or we just don't bother? How's your corporate prayer life in this church? You know, the scriptures tell us everywhere that prayer is to be a priority, not a secondary thing. You know, many of us have probably heard great stories of what's been done in churches through prayer. Do you want this church to move ahead? Would you like to see people saved? Would we like to see people, more people coming to the church? Would, we like to, would you like to see God do something with you? Then you better be serious about prayer because without that, we're wasting our time trying. And I think God won't bless the church that doesn't pray. And why would we want to see growth? Is it out of concern for the finances? Are we worried about numbers? Or is it out of concern for the lost? You see, God knows our hearts. And if we want growth to boost the finance, I don't think that God is going to bless us. In fact, not only will he not bless us, but we'll only succeed in stirring up, uh, stirring up his wrath. And that's because we don't have God's interest at heart but our own. Now Moses interceded or acted as a go-between for the nation and God relented from judgment. And this was one of the great, great examples in the Bible of intercession. But you know, it wasn't the greatest. The greatest was to happen thousands of years later. The greatest was when God interceded in human affairs to bring people to himself. The greatest act of intercession in the Bible is when Jesus stepped into human history uh, and went to the cross to take the punishment that we all deserve. Never underestimate the power of prayer. The scriptures tell us over and over again that much can be achieved through prayer and that it has to be a starting point for all church activity, otherwise we're doomed to failure. But what about us personally? Are we doomed to failure because we won't prepare with prayer? See, God is right to be angry with mankind, but he's given us a way to avoid his wrath. If we go on ignoring his offer, his wrath or his anger still remains upon us. And yet the solution is so simple. Accept the free gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. Trouble is so often we have trouble even with something as simple as this. You know, I think that's because really deep down we're not so different from the Israelites. They were sinners and we are too. There's an old bumper sticker around years ago, you probably remember it, Christians are not perfect, just forgiven. But are you forgiven? Is God still angry with you? Or are you at peace with him? Is God still angry with you? His wrath and his anger is always just, it's always fair, it always maintains his holiness. How did Israel stir up God's anger? What was the main cause of God's anger with the nation all through the Old Testament, over and over and over again? It was their unfaithfulness. It was their worship of false gods and all that that worship involved, their rejection of the true living God. What idols do we have? We've been looking at God's wrath and his anger today, but you know, I think in this passage too, there's one other characteristic of God that really shines through. There's something else in this passage, another characteristic. Can any of you see what it is? I think it's grace. In this passage we see so clearly God's grace. Moses prayed 
and God showed his grace to the nation by not punishing them. And what a great act of grace God has shown us in Jesus Christ, that he would come and die and shed his blood for each one of us. Let's all pray together. Heavenly Father, you are a God who has every right to be every right to be angry with mankind. But you're a loving and a caring God too. And Paul tells us in Romans that you chose some people to be yours before the foundations of this world were laid. And so, Lord, unworthy though we are, you've drawn us into your kingdom and saved us by your grace. It's nothing from us but all from you. And so, Father, I pray that we would live our lives as true followers of Jesus Christ. May we be worthy of you in our thoughts and our words and our deeds. And may we hear those great words that Paul, I'm certain, heard one day. Well done, good and faithful servant. Lord, may you, your spirit fill us and empower our lives to serve you in any way that you would have us serve. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.